I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hi, everyone. It's mind-rolling. I'm with Trudy Goodman, an old friend. Do you know, Trudy, when we met, we met, we're mutual friends of Sharon Salzberg, so it's all in s- very, very um, insidious, our relationships on the Be Here Now network. And on top of it, Trudy is married to Jack Cornfield. So there you go. Trudy, welcome. Thank you. We're family. Yeah. I'm glad to have you here. It's taken a while. I'm so happy you are with us finally. <laughs> it's so great. Uh, Trudy, everybody, Trudy runs Insight LA. So I want to tell you all one thing right off the bat. Everybody who's listening, because many, many of you are always asking uh, to be prompted about places and uh, methods that you can use to get, as we say here, from our course that we just finished, A Life in Balance. And so uh, Insight LA is uh, a fantastic place to go and get uh, training in insight meditation. And it's called Vipassana. And at the very least, get a handle on, on monkey mind. And that's just a start in terms of doing one-pointed exercises and meditations. And Trudy uh, will help you through that, and and uh, everybody that all that information and uh, resources will be up on the website, uh, the Mind Rolling website with Trudy. This episode, so uh, yeah, nobody can ask anymore. If you're in LA, go to Insight LA. Okay. And you know, even if you're not in LA, we have uh, lots of audio and starting to have video and there's other resources that people can access from far away. Great, great. So, uh, Trudy, let's start off by you telling me, and actually, although we've known each other a long time, I don't know this story, which is your story uh, coming out of uh, youthhood <laughs> into adulthood, or whenever it may have been, that you had the kind of prompts that showed you there was a way to transform, a way to be happy, a way to live uh, more, way more in the moment, as we call it now, though we would not have thought of that back then. So, yeah, what were the things that triggered you? Yeah, I, it's interesting, Raghu, because the experiences, they were experiences, actually, that triggered me. And they were experiences that I had 
in the they were particularly female experiences in the sense that the they were honestly they were spiritual openings that happened in the course of the first one happened while I was in labor giving birth to my daughter and uh, you know it was a kind of glimpse into something so much more vast than you know, this body giving birth to this mm. baby. Um, I really saw the whole chain of being, everybody who had ever been born, who was going to be born. It was a literally mind-blowing, mind-opening experience. But I also was very young, and I had just turned 22. And I didn't know. I thought, well, this is just what happens when people have a baby. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is just part Sartori of it. Sartori happens. In the they don't baby. talk about it because uh, this is just what happens. And nobody had talked with me very much in those days about labor and delivery. I didn't really, you know, it wasn't the days of people having home births and really educating themselves. Um, so I never really thought much about it again. I was very altered for a while, but again... I just had a baby. So I attributed it to being in this sort of psychedelic state of new mother, new baby, uh, opening heart, etc. And And then the second time happened when my daughter was two and a half. Um, I was studying in Geneva, Switzerland, with the developmental psychologist Jean Piaget, in his program, and she became very, very ill, actually was dying um, oh of spinal meningitis, the most oh. virulent kind. And, yeah. I mean, she's fine. I want to say she's fine. She recovered. She had a lot of hearing loss, but she's really fine. And she, um, but at that time, she would code, and these doctors would come running, and there would be, you know, six doctors and nurses around this tiny little body in the bed. And, and during one of those times, um, again, I had this experience of just suddenly my mind opening and seeing, oh my gosh, God is not someplace else. This time it was very clear. God is not anywhere, but right here in this activity of compassion. And that that time really, uh, I noticed in a different way. And I, of course, attributed it, I think, rightly to the suffering of that moment, like mm. being in such intense that, you know, the mind was sort of catapulted into a different dimension. But it was, what was beautiful is that it was this dimension right here. And that was so clear. So, Raghu, I started seeking, I wanted somebody who sort of understood about this. And I started looking around and going to swamis who would say, you know, eat artichokes and say swaha. And it didn't seem right. Um, you know, I was a mom, so I wasn't in India. I was in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And finally, um, through my dear friends and Dharma brothers, Larry Rosenberg and John Kabat-Zinn, was brought to visit a Korean Zen master named Sansanim. And I just looked into his eyes and saw he knows what I want to know. Mm. So that's how it started. Mm. I started as a Zen student and did 15 years of training in wow. that tradition. Uh, um, it's, in, it, it's interesting. I just want to say one more thing. It's, I'm grateful that it started without my knowing anything about Buddhism or Hinduism yeah. or, you know, I was Jewish and but not observant in any way. And I'm grateful because it's really shown me that what we would call Buddha nature or awakening, that it really does pervade the whole universe and manifests right here, right now as this moment of experience and, you know, this life. But I never thought it was just in one tradition because these experiences didn't happen in a mosque or a temple mm. or with a guru. Right. That sounds like Kabir, by the way, the poet Life Kabir. <laughs> no mosque, no temple, no, it's all right here. Okay, yeah. Some of the greatest yeah. stuff. I, got, I, I was interrupting you because you tell me this story of that experience with your child, your daughter, Trudy. Yes. I had the exact same experience with my son. Really? Spinal really? meningitis. Yeah. 
in a you know did in, he have uh, hemophilus b i don't know what he has he's okay is all i know this is when yeah. he was a a baby just like you know i, I think he was oh my 14 months old at the time and so it was scary. like the worst thing that ever happened to me by far yeah, and it's very uh, scary. And I also had, although I had by that time met Neem Karoli Baba Maharaji, I had, uh, this was uh, 10 years later actually, something like that after I met him, that this happened. Uh, I had a uh, extraordinary experience with uh, Maharaji basically coming and, and helping be, uh, directly because I had this incredible dream. He was unconscious for days, right? You know the whole drill. Oh, yeah, they're yeah. in a coma. Yeah, so that night Maharaji came to me in a dream and said, he'll be all right, you'll go back to the hospital tomorrow morning. He'll be okay, and I went back, and he came out of the coma, and through pure grace got better. And uh, so, yeah. I had the same kind, I mean, wow. you had the same experience okay. with her. I mean, yes. the guru is nothing but part of all of that moment, right? So, yeah. so well, yeah, that brings we have something. Tears to my eyes. I'm sorry that happened to you, and I'm glad your son is fine. Yeah, yeah, no, same yeah. here. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. We never met, I never knew that, you know, that's so amazing. Yeah. Well, uh, it was a long, long time ago in yeah. my experience. I mean, my daughter's going to be 50. Oh, she's going to be 50 next week. So that was a long time ago. Oh, my. Yeah. Um, I mean, she has, you know, I have grandkids. I mean, yeah. So there's something um, that I found of yours that struck me. Um, I can't remember if it was a blog or not, but we're talking just this experience that both of us had, which was gigantic suffering. You know, anybody who's had a child in trouble can relate. My tears fall with yours. It's the meeting suffering and tragedy without closing our hearts. I'd love for you to talk about that, especially in light of what this experience that we both had. Yeah. You know, the meditation practice that we do, whether we call it mindfulness or insight meditation or vipassana, or whether it's prayer or chanting or kirtan, the practices that we do open us um, more and more to being present with experience as we, we focus on whether it's the sound or the breath or the prayer. We're really bringing ourselves into this moment, and that makes us more sensitive. And the sensitivity heightens both you know, the beauty and joy of life, all the love we feel, but it also heightens... Um, the painful dimensions of our existence as humans. And, and the more we practice, the more that happens, um, both you know, at either end of the spectrum, the full spectrum of our humanity. And so as, as we practice, we become more sensitive, we go through periods of, um, you know, heart opening that's beautiful, but also periods of grief. When we look around at the world, the more awake we become, the more we awake we are to not just the beauty, but the suffering of the world. And we learn little by little through just keep practicing, keep practicing. And through the company of each other, as we do this, we learn to be able to hold that and bear that and I think the practice gives us the fortitude, really, the courage and the bravery to be um, awake in this existence. And, and I, so I, it feels very important to me that maybe more important than anything else, this question of how do we keep our hearts open um, in the midst of suffering? Because what I'm describing is a kind of evolution where our own suffering, of course it matters to us, but it doesn't get to us in the same way. But then there's the suffering of the world. And recently, an old friend whom I had not seen for years, um, 
Michael Stone, a wonderful Buddhist teacher mm, and about that, yeah. tremendously accomplished yogi, uh, died suddenly. And, you know, it turns out that he was suffering in a way that he didn't feel he could share with his community because he was struggling with some mental illness. And this is something that... Um, I really thought about a lot, Raghu, that the suffering that we see on, I mean, I live in Los Angeles. There's lots of homeless people. There are um, both mentally ill and addicted people. They're visible. They're right there um, in encampments on our streets. And like you, we're old enough to remember a time when we didn't have this in our society but we do now. And, and so I'm interested in how do we keep our hearts, not only keep our hearts open, but find a way to help out uh, when we look around and whatever the suffering is that, you know, that is in front of us, um, whether it's facing the stigmatization of people who are suffering with mental illness to the point where they may wind up dying rather than face the shame, right? Um, whether it's the refugees, which is something that is close to my heart, the idea of being having to leave your home and mm. everything you know and, and not know where you're going to wind up. And, I mean, it's just so terrifying. And so keeping our hearts open in the face of what's happening to our planet, and I could go on and on, racism, poverty, all the suffering that we see. I think this is so crucial because we're not going to be able to find ways to help if we turn away because it's just too much to bear. So I write that because I think about that, and it's part of my practice now is how do I help people come to terms with their own existence and the way that our existences are inextricably linked mm -hmm. so that we can use the peace of mind and um, the love and the joy that come to us from this practice um, at the compassion so that we can use it to help our world. Mm -hmm. And it's um, probably a good segue because I know one thing I do know in the recent couple of years, you made a, a trip to Africa. So talk about to the Darf Darfur refugee camp. Yes. And yes. So talk about suffering and and being confronted with that. And how did you? Because that's that's a constant, huge, right in yes. front of you, day to day, moment to moment thing. That's not just like oh, I'm I'm driving by you know, East L.A. where, you know, encampments are, whatever it is, and, you know, that's a they're moment. They're in West L.A. too. Oh, they're in go. West L.A., right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm right. sorry to say, but... Yeah. It, right. They're in the promenade, probably. Um, but in this case, it's moment to moment you are living in this, you know, you were in this camp. How, how did you manage with the internal, you know, the reactions that we have that run the gamut uh, of emotions? Well, I won't say it's easy. It's difficult uh, because being in a refugee camp, especially one where there's people you know, who've been there for 13 years, this is their life, and they don't have enough food to stay well, and they don't have, there's no medical care if you get sick to speak of. Um, it's really a, a kind of hellish situation. And so... For me, what, um, what really helped is just meeting the people and seeing what they are, the beautiful things that they are doing in the midst of um, health, really, health, that they're creating community. Um, I don't want to idealize the community, but in many ways it's based on fairness and justice and um, They've organized themselves to do their very best in that situation. And 
uh, I went with a group called IACT, which is an anti-genocide group that is starting preschools and did the, actually asked the refugees what they would like and what would help them. And that's what they asked for preschools and soccer. Really? So I was there to help, um, help train the, and it's all refugee led program. And I was there to help train the and it's all women who are the teachers to help train them in mindfulness and how to bring mindfulness into their curriculum. You know, when you're, when you're in a place, Raghu, we harmonize with that environment and people wherever they are, people are people and know how to recognize open hearts. You know, that's something I really feel um, goes beyond language. We feel that in each other mm. and that, uh, that we all care in that situation. We all care about the children and they are the future and educating them and bringing mindfulness to help people deal with the ongoing chronic stress of their situation there. I mean, there are 60, if you count internally displaced people, um, you know, fleeing war within their own countries, like in Sudan, there are 65 million uh, displaced people right now on the earth. And, you know, it's, it's easy to think, well, you know, what does this help? One little drop in a bucket, but it helps us. And just think if everybody put one drop in that bucket, everybody on the planet, we would solve our problems. Mm. So that's how I look at it. And that is, um, I think that when you're engaged in an activity to be of service or help others. And you know this, I mean, Ram Dass's teaching is so based on, and, and, you know, and, and your guru is so based on serving and helping others, whether it's feeding them or um, caring for them when they're sick or loving them in any way we can. Uh, it does help. It helps us. It's, and we're not separate. Because we're not separate, it helps everyone. Yeah, I love it. I love the word harmonize. You went there and you very quickly harmonized with what is, with people, yeah. with the situation, with the suffering, with the positivity, with all of it. I think that's a great word, Trudy. Uh, Thank you. Really good. So, which brings up for me, we are in this country in a very difficult spot, many of us, or half of us. As, yes. As, as I, had a, I did a podcast with, with your husband, with Jack, uh, not too long ago, and brought up the situation in, in, in America, what's gone on with the uh, sea change in administration and, and yes. everything that's been going on in the last, since January. And, and of course, I brought it up in a way that was... Uh, shall we say, quote-unquote, deprecating towards that administration and towards mm -hmm. what was happening. And by, I guess, by implication, the people who voted him in. And Jack was quick to remind me, well, I think you're talking about, you know, maybe half or so of the people. You're not talking to all the people. And it's something I quickly forget, Whenever I bring this up with anybody, with all of my friends and the teachers that are on the network and so on, at the same time, very difficult to harmonize <laughs> with what is going on and uh, with this administration, the things that are happening, the suffering that is being created in my eyes, and obviously many of the people, most of the people that I communicate with and since i love that word we we could use some i mean how are you harmonizing with the reality of what is going on and how are you not how are you uh harmonizing with the situation of radical polarization and the us and them that is is created uh naturally by this uh, tremendous um push uh, against social justice? So that's, those are big questions and yeah. I'll just start with, yeah. um, yeah. <laughs> I'll start with the last one, which is I, 
the word harmonizing with what is, to me, it means listening and seeing mm. what is, and then choosing where to act or where to take a stand if the way things are simply cannot align with my values, um, what I hold to be true and important in this life. But I have spent time listening to people who voted in this administration because they had hopes of what could happen that would benefit our world. And one of the things that has come so clear for me is that we, in our particular cultural context, as privileged white people, um, and privileged in the sense, in so many ways, but also in the sense that we are, um, you know, we're not wealthy, but we're economically okay, and we have work to do. That when I listen to people who are not like us or not in our situation, I can really see how different their priorities are and why they voted the way they did and why they feel the way they feel about um, some of the things that we consider to be social justice, but they consider to be focusing on people who don't deserve it, whereas, you know, they're working really hard and yeah. can't get anywhere. I mean, really hearing where people are coming from and what matters and what they care about has helped me. Um, it doesn't help me with some of the things that I consider to be cruel, cutting back on programs to help um, the most vulnerable or mm. leaving people who were already vetted as, you know, asylum seekers or refugees to come into this country who left where they live, who sold all their goods, who gave up you know, everything because they were already vetted to come and now they can't. I mean, there's so many, many instances yeah. of things that I can't, if harmonize means agree with, no, I do not. But if harmonize means open to the whole mandala of what's happening and see where we might be able to intervene um, to help in the ways that we feel deeply and passionately are needed. Um, again, I keep coming back to doing something. And I know that we're talking about, you know, we're in a context of contemplative practice. But once again, I'll say I feel at this time, which does feel different and urgent in terms of our planet and so forth, um, I think the role of our contemplative practice has to be to fortify our hearts and give us the courage to get active in some way and do something about the things we care about. Yeah. Yes, back to that harmonize with the mandala of life is, is uh, I, I love the term. I mean, it's really striking me um, because just harmony, coming from harmony, and there's so much disharmony going on. So yes. I think, you know. Yes. Um, now, there was uh, our, uh, another friend, I think you quoted him, uh, Actually, I don't know him, but I know quite well who he is, and I think you're friendly with Norman Fisher, Zen teacher. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, uh, I think you. I believe this is his quote: "Make practice your whole life. The core heart is our intention, and our under and understanding wisdom powers our formal meditation practice." So. There's a way in which people think that, um, actually, I was just watching something on, on YouTube, uh, Facebook, which was Krishnadas is uh, in doing a European tour right now. And, uh, and it was, he had some kind of Q&A, and someone says, well, what do I do? You know, I've got my practice, and I'm, you know, doing whatever. And then I've got my family life, and I'm trying to take care. How do, what do I do? There's two things. And Krishna said, I didn't think they are two things. And I thought that was a great response. And and a lot of people have that issue around practice is one thing, but then living our day-to-day -day life is another thing. 
And I, so uh, if this came from Norman or you, whoever, but make practice your whole life and, and cultivating, uh, you know, that heart understanding that allows you to integrate and not think that they are in any way separate. You just talk about uh, cultivating practice yeah. as your, your no, life I as actually, practice. Yeah, I actually just did a whole um, a six-week video course called Everything is Your Path. Oh, really? And, oh. Yeah, and I really I did that actually through Conscious, too. You can still join it because um, we just started. Because this is so dear to my heart, you know, I had to find a way to make everything my path and to integrate practice with daily life. Because as I mentioned, I became a mom really young. Um, I wasn't off in ashrams and traveling through Asia in monasteries, practicing um, monastic, you know, in that beautiful container of intensive practice. And I had to carve out times and ways, and I was even a single mom. So I would have to trade with friends or once, you know, sometimes friends like John and Myla Kabat-Zinn would take my daughter for a week so I could do an intensive really? Zen retreat for a week. Um, and what felt like a challenge and limitation in those days, I now see as a gift. And so I say this to those of you who have um, busy lives and aren't going to be able to go sit a three-month meditation course or retreat, take heart. Because in, in that very uh, crucible or pressure cooker of the intensity of trying to balance work and family and all the things that we do, our relationship, our marriage, whatever it is, um, that in the in the effort to balance those things and to be mindful of where we get out of balance because things are constantly falling out of balance and to be able to carve out the time to do nothing so radical and especially these days of you know constant connectivity and people companies making the decision that every email must be responded to within 10 minutes. Um, this, you know, in against the backdrop of all of that, there's a bigger backdrop, which is a backdrop of perfect balance. And that we connect with in our time of being quiet each day, just feeling the harmonious activity of this body the fact that the organs and systems are all working together to sustain our life and consciousness, mm -hmm. being aware of what supports our life, the air we breathe, the sounds we hear, the um, earth that holds us up, um, gravity, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. just to really understand the Dharma in these everyday terms and see its functioning all day long this I'm not sure it can be done without some periods of formal practice each day um, or at least each week because uh, I've never tried to do that but uh, I think this question of are they two things or are they not is is very profound because meditation prayer kirtan these times that we devote to our sadhana to our spiritual practice they are a slice of life. They're just a slice of life where we are um, not distracted by all the demands on us. It's a slice of life for self-care, but it's not different or separate from the rest of our life any more than you know, eating a meal is different and separate from getting ready for bed. Uh, it's the same consciousness throughout all of these activities and beginning to step back into the awareness that knows that uh, is, you know, is our practice. Now, obviously, Raghu, I could go on and on. I'm very passionate about this question, mm -hmm. so I'm glad you asked it. Thank yeah. you. No, it's important. It's important to everybody. And, and the awareness of the one who knows is, is what gets cultivated all when you sit formally 
on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, I'm all for telling people that that's a necessity, actually. Uh, uh, I think it's you're saying it's twofold. You know, one is just it's part of life, and it just do nothing for five minutes. Start there. But I think to actually practice, and, and you know, I, I do recommend uh, Anapana Vipassana just focusing on, on the breath for a few minutes to, to just get a hold of this, uh, you know, crazy minds that we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. So, yeah, I think, again, go see Trudy at Inside L.A., you guys in L.A., or come do a retreat outside of L.A. I did one with you. You don't even remember a long time ago. Was the nineties? You do. Oh, with in the nineties? No, yeah. that yeah. I don't remember. I remember one when Sharon, Sharon. Um, was there. I think we were in the yoga house in L.A. Um, or there was one maybe there. Maybe it was the and first the... time Sharon came and taught with me in L.A. when we were just starting out, and that was probably two thousand two around there. There's was one it in the 90s. Then? Oh, yeah. I don't even remember. Uh, um, there's, uh, and, and talking about Inside LA, and I'm sure this is a part of Inside LA, not just the formal training and so on, but um, I, I believe uh, Master Sengai, am I pronouncing that right? Sengai? I, I think so. Master's, uh, it was a blessing, blessing that I got a quote from, it's something either in a blog or something of yours, Master Senge, and community is our lifeline. And I, that is such a huge deal in our, I mean, you know, listen, the Buddha himself, when, right? When they said, what's the most important, more, most important thing in terms of the three refuges? Uh, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. And he said, Sangha. And I have, you know, I've gotten the same message from our uh, Indian mother, Siddhima, years ago about satsang is the most important thing for you to cultivate. And uh, so, yeah, what are your feelings ab about it and, and, and related to what you're doing at uh, Inside LA? So when I moved to Los Angeles, um, it was about... 16 years ago now, because Inside LA is almost 15, will be 15 in the fall. And I came there for family reasons after a devastating divorce. I didn't know really anybody um, except the family members I was coming to help out. And I was in a kind of um, almost despair at that time, Raghu, because it was so lonesome and I left my known world completely. My community, uh, my professional colleagues in life of almost 30 years in Boston, my marriage, um, you know, my 30 year friendships, I mean, all of it, and went someplace where I really didn't know anybody um, professionally, although I did in lots of other cities and places, not in LA. And so I found myself, you know, my mom gave me this little car she had. And anyway, I found myself driving around this little Toyota all by myself, lost half the time <laughs> because everything looked the same when I would go out. Um, and, uh, and I thought there are other people all alone in their cars too, all around me. If I feel this lonesome, other people must feel this too. It's not just because I don't know anybody here. This is hard to spend a lot of your day in the car or um, not connected. So that's when I really felt the longing for community. And I visited several spiritual groups and, and just felt that uh, not, they were all wonderful, but I longed for a way to practice in the tradition in the way that I was trained in. And I'm a hybrid, really, between Zen and uh, insider Vipassana and have also practiced for a number of years in the Vajrayana tradition. So I really wanted a place where I could teach and share what I love the most, um, which really d derived from all three, all three traditions. Mm. And 
so the whole first year, every talk I gave was about refuge in Sangha, about the importance of community, mm. about forming community from all these different angles. And, and it turned out as we discover what we are feeling as human beings is what people feel. There comes a time in our practice when we realize, oh, this is not my personal neurosis. This is not my personal problem. I may have those, of course, I'm a human being. But also, this is what it's like to be a human being who feels lonesome. Mm. And anybody else living in a big city feeling lonesome and disconnected can relate to that. And so little by little, from a group of two people, we grew and... I think part of why we've grown and flourished so much, Raghu, at Inside LA is because we've also embraced from the start, we're the first center who from the start said we are going to have secular mindfulness trainings as well as Buddhist um, teachings and retreats in the Buddhist path so that we can serve in our community. We can go, we've gone into the VA hospitals in LA, the children's hospitals, the prisons, the, we've been able to work in mental health clinics and um, you know, places where as Buddhists, it's tricky you know, that we have separation of church and state. And um, so I really feel that that's been it's been building community and building a community that is inclusive of those who may not want to define themselves as Buddhist right, right. at all. Right. And now we're working to become more inclusive and culturally sensitive uh, so that it's not just about including people from different, um, you know, sort of spiritual beliefs or people who've just come for medical or, you know, psychological or physical healing, but also to include explicitly people of color, people of different abilities, um, making sure our spaces are accessible, uh, making sure that we have teachers uh, who look like the people who are coming to learn, um, and making sure that we, those of us who are um, white and maybe coming from a more middle-class background, that we become aware of the ways that our privilege may play out in um, mm -hmm. ways that are completely alienating to those who don't share this frame. And I think this is an issue in all of our uh, centers, but it's one that we are just taking on now. Um, in a much more sustained way than ever before. And I'm, I'm proud of that because, yeah. you know, whether you're from the LGBT IQ or whatever um, community that's been historically marginalized to know that there is a place for you where people know and understand and relate to your experience. Um, whether it's yeah. being in recovery, whether, you know, whether it's struggling with mental illness. Uh, but anyway, these are the, these yeah. are things that I really care about. Yeah. And Making I don't, room for everybody. Yeah. I don't think that, uh, you can say just, uh, the, you know, the Vipassana centers, of course, that we know about are it's every, in terms of privilege and, you know, in terms of people being able to even go and spend the yes. time to practice, oh, to yeah, be taught, to teach, that privilege yeah. is gigantic. And, and I think yeah. all centers that are, uh, quote-unquote, from any spiritual, mystical tradition need to absolutely uh, think about that. And I, I think that it's just occurring to me now how much of that is needed, especially in these times of this gigantic exactly. polarization. Yeah, yeah so, we really have to work together as yeah. much as we can. Yeah. Um, just a couple more things here that I just, I have to, uh, first of all, there, you mentioned something, again, it must be a blog, Devotion and Refuge. I think it might have been a title of something you wrote, but of course, it's curious because in, um, of course, in the Vrajrayana tradition, there is 
the notion of devotion related to teachers and gurus and so on, but not so much, of course, in in Southern Buddhist practice and uh, in Zen practice. Um, talking about, yeah, I'm interested in devotion and refuge, and I notice I made a note, devotion as refuge. Oh, yeah. I, I don't remember it. You know, I don't remember many things that I say or, <laughs> or write, but I know what I... I know what I care about and what I love and what I meant by that is um, that often when we think of devotion, we think of devotion to something outside of ourselves, whether it's a being who is more spiritually developed, um, a teacher, um, a God that's somewhere out there, up there. uh, And, when we go for refuge, it's really clear. We are going for refuge in the Buddha, which stands for our own awareness and capacity for awakening, not just the historical Buddha. Although the historical Buddha was a human being, and in Southern Buddhism, that is very much emphasized, not a god, a human being like you and me, Hmm. who came to this profound spiritual truth and understanding. And that's meant to inspire us that if a human being could do this and that he's, and the Buddha said very clearly, I would not ask this mindfulness, compassion, these teachings, these trainings, I would not ask this of you if you couldn't do it, if it weren't possible to do. So we go for refuge in that. We go for refuge in the teachings themselves, uh, in the way things are, the laws of the universe. We go for refuge in each other, um, that we can share our confusion and be open and honest and truthful about our lives so that we can help see more clearly and forgive ourselves for being imperfect and all of that. So the devotion to refuge, um, refuge as devotion to me means treasuring really profoundly cherishing Mm. our own innate capacities and our own relational life in whether we are a hermit or whether we're living, you know, in LA, uh, in a big city, wherever you are, uh, our life depends on each other. There's no way around it. So devotion, that love, uh, that dedication that you feel and practice say with and for your guru, it's like a boomerang, right? It comes back to you. You send it and it comes back to you. But what if we just go direct right into our own hearts? I think that's what I'm talking about there. Yeah. And in the case of my own tradition, actually, it is going inside into that place that's in us that he represented and represents. Exactly. You know, it was tough when there was a body with that kind of unconditional love manifestation in front of you. It was easy to get attached to, of course, which may be one of the reasons he left after we were only with him for a few years. Uh, But yeah, beautifully said. Trudy. And that's a necessary stage too, I think, you know, the being attached and idealizing a teacher. Um, it's not a mistake at all, Raghu, unless we never sort of grow past that point. But I see it as a necessary phase, just like kids need to believe in and worship their parents until they become teenagers and realize they know way more than their parents <laughs> ever dreamed of knowing. Um, but, you know, or, or going into psychotherapy, and you have to believe in your therapist that they have some uh, knowledge and um, ability to help you heal whatever is troubling you or standing in your way of love and work and so forth. So it, the idealization, I think, is a good... I think we're lucky if we have people we can look up to and admire and respect yeah, well, and then then make them part of who we are, yeah. or make what they represent, which is what you're saying, so yeah. beautiful. Well, what they represent is totally the potential of a human being. Ultimately, that's the that's the overarching reality. 
Yes. It's like Buddha. He realized he was a human being who realized the truth. And yes. uh, so that rubs off on you when you hang out with that. Okay, one last thing. And this can be a one-sentence piece of advice. Okay. Trudy got married well, fairly recently, summer be- a year ago, actually. Yeah. Ramdas married them. It was a beautiful ceremony. I saw the pictures. And, uh, and you know, I've been around Jack and Trudy fairly often over the last years because they come and teach in Maui at our retreats. What's the secret, Trudy? What oh, is what, the secret <laughs> of this wonderful, uh, loving relationship that I have witnessed? How do you manage? Because uh, I'm sure... You know, you also got used to a very independent lifestyle, both of you at some point. And, um, you know, it's a little more difficult, shall we say, uh, as we get used to certain things. And but here you are. And I'm I'm even seeing it in this podcast. Jack's come in and out. You're talking about this, that and the other. (laughs) (laughs) What's the secret to conscious love in a relationship in three words or less? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. What is the secret? Um, You know, I think it's a pretty open secret, Raghu, that as we embrace what I was talking about at the beginning, you know, the full spectrum of our humanity, we realize there's no such thing as perfection outside of the imperfections of this incarnation, this human incarnation. And, uh, and so when we're not looking for perfection in ourselves or the other person, we free each other to simply enjoy being on this incredible journey together. Mm. Okay, I'll buy it. Appreciation. <laughs> Appreciation <laughs> and gratitude. And uh, joy. And joy. And, and fun. And uh, yes. Thank you so much, Trudy. It's been wonderful spending some time with you. I'm going to tell everybody again. You can. It's what insightla.org. Yes, insightla.org. Exactly. Everybody go there. And Trudy also has a site, TrudyGoodman.com, I believe. Yeah. That's going to be overhauled but right now it's there with all the it's got the blogs on it yeah, so that's, that's a, a good thing yeah yeah they're really great um and all of that information will be up on our on uh, the mind rolling page on beherenownetwork.com you can go to beherenownetwork.com slash mind rolling you'll get all of the show notes for this show and recommendations and uh well trudy let's make this this the beginning of uh more of these sharings that we can do together okay thank you ragu very very happy that we got to do this and looking forward to more yeah thank you thank you everybody we shall see you next week on mind rolling on the be here now network